Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, securing your castle with zero trust with special guests Steve Oren and Cameron Sherry. Steve, Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Darren. How are you? Good to be here. Thank you. Now, Cameron is our brand new VP and general manager of public sector at Intel. And he's been with the company for what, four weeks now. I think that's about right there. You got it. All right. That's that's awesome. And all those that have already been listening to the podcast already know Steve really well. He's been on the podcast several times. He's our CTO of U.S. public sector. Um, Steve, welcome back to the show. Good to be here again. All right, Cameron, what's all the zero trust stuff that we're hearing about? You know, Darren, it's interesting. It's almost what old is new again. You know, our, our security strategies for the last 30 to 40 years have really been built in uh, strategies that we had in literally times of old. When you think of how you used to protect castles, as an example, right? I'd put sentries along the road. I'd have a moat to protect the castle and all my crown jewels would be in the castle. It was very centrally managed, centrally located. As zero trust has emerged, and I'm hoping my good colleague here, Steve, will agree with me, it really is a framework for updated or modern thinking on how we protect our most precious crown jewels, which happens to be data and information. When we think about protecting that, we always have to remember that what is the most attacked part of the attack surface of the enterprise, Darren? It's clients, right? It's the end user. So this strategy, number one, is a framework. It's not a silver bullet. It's not technology. It starts at the outer edge in, and it creates pillars of excellence with a couple horizontals. Steve and I, I know Steve's done a brilliant job working with the standards bodies to get, get more refinement, but it really is an updated way of thinking. And I think the one takeaway, Darren, that I would leave you with on this opening salvo is it's not only technically oriented, but it allows us to bring our mission and business partners into the conversation in a very real way. I would like to add to and I think, Cameron, you really hit on a, a good uh, analogy there, the castle. Um, if we think about the old style, again, having moats and having guards and putting them on different, various different strategic places, in the past, we did that based on sort of what we thought was the right place to put all those controls, all those protections. And then we had this idea of risk-based approach, which is also a key part of your trust architecture. And what risk basically, with the risk-based approach really is learning about two things, what has worked and not worked in the past, and what, where is the most important things to protect, and how do you protect them based on the risks of the day? Where are the attackers So if we use the castle example, um, knowing that the last time you were invaded, they came in through the left door, you may want to shore up defenses there, but also realizing how they got in, you want to shore up the rest of your defenses based on the knowledge what those threats did to the last time. So it's not just about protecting the thing they attacked last time, but learning from that attack or the kinds of attacks that are now capable and applying those defenses across. And so when we look at what is a risk-based approach to applying defense in there, it's not just sort of solving for the last attack. So we're thinking ahead of applying the right controls for the current threat and future threat. So building in the, the uh, protections throughout the enterprise. And the other analogy uh, that you brought up, Cameron, which I think is really useful, is it's not just about me. It's not just about my company. It's about understanding my ecosystem. Customers, my partners, my users are all part of the security ca uh, calculus. 
And so when you apply a zero trust approach, you're looking about how everyone accesses and everyone's data as part of the overall approach. So how do your business partners connect to your network? How do you protect them? How do your users, how do your customers, and understand they're all part of the, of the conversation. It's not just about my little castle. Okay, so back to the castle. I love the castle. All right, but back to the castle. You're saying all the people, you still need people coming in and out of the castle. You still need supplies in and out of the castle. But this still sounds like old school, protect the hard shell of the outside data center. We know that doesn't work. So you got to have other protections outside of the moat. That's so this right. is where the zero trust uh, really starts to differ from the classic model. So the classic model still was a defense in depth. Right. Build all the protections all the way through. So get away from that hard eggshell, soft interior to more of a hard boiled egg approach to security. What zero trust does is sort of takes it one step further. And what it does is for those in ingresses and, and, and exits, for the data coming in or the people that are accessing, it takes a different approach to how you authenticate. Even in the defense and death, we still had the concept of once I knew it was you, Darren, you were in. You could get access, single sign-on. You could authenticate to one, go anywhere. Your laptop, basically, once you logged in, you had access. And what Zero Trust puts in is a couple, two key foundational things, a whole bunch of principles, but two really important ones. Default deny and continuous monitoring and authentication. What that means is, by default, I don't trust you. Zero Trust, I don't trust you until you prove otherwise. And then the yeah. piece that follows that is, Every time that I assert a trust, it's not forever. It's a constant reauthentication, a constant monitoring of your status to make sure that I know this trust of you at this moment in time, not oh, 10 days okay, ago. Okay, wait, wait a second, Steve. This sounds like a paranoid king in his fiefdom. Nothing will ever get done. Don't you agree, Cameron? Not necessarily, Darren, but I love the provocative question you're stimulating here. If I was to boil this down, this is why I said Zero Trust, such an interesting conversation from a mission or business partner. Let's break down what, what Steve just laid out. <clears throat> Think of when you show up into the castle and you show up to a reception desk. The reception desk is now validating again who you are, how you entered the castle. From the reception desk, they're asking you what you're visiting in the castle. We may only want you to have access to the lobby or the lobby in the restroom or you're visiting someone very prescriptive in, say, the dining room of the castle. Well, you're going to get escorted along the way. What Steve is really saying here is, is we're tailoring the security experience based on the user, what they need access to, and the device they're using to access the network. All we're simply saying here is we're tailoring the strategy and the experience regardless of where you go in the castle, Darren. And it's not only just about where you are in the castle, but also when you're on the road. What data do you have when you go back out and you leave the castle? Where do you go when you're traveling around the world? And if you're in a higher risk zone, maybe we clamp down a little bit on the data that you have access to. As Steve mentioned, a really important point is it's dynamic and it's risk-based. And I think that's the key, because as we all know, castles are pretty fixed assets, right? Yeah, so they don't very move cool. very often. I don't know any organization in public sector or outside of public sector that has all their data just in the data center anymore. That's right. All right, so now maybe this goes back to your ecosystem, right? My data is now spread all over the place. In fact, I'm doing work at the neighbor's castle, right? Um, or a shared castle um, somewhere. Or so, on the edge, right there. Or Yeah, or even out on the edge, right? 
So I think the metaphor can still hold because it's not about one castle. We're talking about a kingdom. A kingdom has many castles, many forts, and then it has allies with their forts and their castles. So we can take this metaphor all the way if you want, or we can just get to the, the heart of it is your data and the access to your data is pervasive from the edge to the cloud, multi-clouds, multiple data centers, multiple edge endpoints, and multiple business environments. Your customers, your partners, your users can live in multiple places. And so it's really understanding it's a data-centric approach and an access-centric approach married together with a risk-based approach. Start pulling all these different approaches that you bubble up and say, oh, this is a zero-trust-based approach. And that's really what it is. It's not reinventing the wheel or throwing away everything we've done good before. It's a way of rationalizing the access approaches we've been taking, the data-centric security, and then putting in that risk-based along with it to really say, do you access, have access to this data at a given time with the right rights and privileges need? And does that need to be maintained beyond the initial transaction, making a decision? Okay, you access the data now, but 10 minutes from now when you're done with it, you're done with it. In the past, you still had that access. The access lived on. So, so it sounds to me like we're taking all the good stuff that we've been doing over the last 30 years, finally the processes and philosophies and principles and technologies and meshing them together and adding one element, which is a temporal element. That's and that's, right. that's exactly. what it really sounds like. That's right, Darren. So it's not, it's not as difficult as everyone's making it out to be, I mean, except for the temporal aspect. That could be kind of tricky. That is true. I think one thing to keep, keep in mind is that while it's not as difficult, at the same time, we're talking not about a technology problem. About process problems. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And process problems are never easy to overcome. Well, it's a cultural problem, too. Yes. Yeah. And Darren, I'd even offer you, I think, the one thread that needs to be pulled there. Um, it uh, provides a lot more strategy in your approach. Before, when we looked at cybersecurity, very parochial, right? And it was very much uh, applied once. And from a compliance perspective, I checked on it annually. What Steve and I are advocating here is a dynamic approach. It's a dynamic threat-based approach. And I'm also using some interesting strategy like hiding in plain sight. You could take the analog anywhere you want to go. Take another example, you know, Fort Knox has all the gold, but it's got to be transferred at some point. So how do you transfer that? Think of what we used to do in the Wild West when banks would transfer funds using stagecoaches, right? Well, that's how my family survived in the West was robbing the stagecoach. <laughs> I do have some of those guys in my There you go. Uh, there you, well, so you understand the strategy, yes, Darren, right? Yeah. This, is, this is about what Steve has talked about. We know that data is going to live everywhere. We know that you're going to need access to it everywhere. So the key is taking those key fundamental best practices and applying them everywhere you need to access the data and information. And that's really what it's about. Okay, now here's... Here's my software engineer. You guys know I'm a software engineer. Maybe Cameron doesn't know that yet. You're learning now, Cameron. Security guys always got in my way because I always needed certain ports open so I could download, you know, the, the latest and greatest versions of, of uh, libraries or modules that I was using sure. in my development. And I also wanted to integrate with some of the other cool tools out there. So it's... Here's the fear that a lot of developers have. You're now going to lock me down even further. So how do you combat those fears? Because it does have to happen somewhat. You can't just have a guy like yeah. me just doing whatever I feel like. But it goes back to the, the, the point we made earlier about making risk-based at that. Not that you're prevented from downloading that module. 
Let's take a real-world example, Og4j. Oh, six months ago, a year ago, no one would care. You download it all you want. Right. The threat environment changed. Yeah. The problem is, is that without these kind of risk-based approaches, you would, in the current models, you would still be able to download Og4j until someone in security came down and shut down that or blocked it outright. But a risk-based approach married with these access and approaches change the access based on the current threat. So Log4j is now a threat. And so your access to say, I want to use this tool, I want to incorporate it into my development lifecycle, instead of security saying, no, you can't, it would actually go in in advance and say, okay, this is now on the blacklist. And we're going to monitor the other CVEs along the lines. But at the same time, as an active participant in the story, it's about finding the alternatives. It's about giving you access to what you need. Now, let me give you a different example there. You've already used Log4j. That ship has sailed. It's already incorporated in. Your product's out the door. How do you mitigate against this current threat while the development team goes off and finds an alternative to Log4j to fix the product with? That's where real-time mitigation come in. So the dynamic trust assessment isn't just about blocking everything that's bad. It's also about putting extra controls. So for instance, you could still use Log4j, but you know that this particular port or this particular protocol is what's being used to exploit. Lock down the access to that so that it doesn't break the product that you're currently using while you mitigate the, the thing from a patch. So it's about both sides of that calculus coming to play in real time. Okay, so th this could be really hard because what that means is your security people now have to know a lot more about the business. That's right. A lot more about Absolutely. development. Where do you find these experts? So it's about partnership. We're not going to turn developers into security experts overnight, and we're not going to be able to turn security experts into However, what we found is successful is strong partnership. This is similar to conversations we've had around things like DevSecOps. Building security into the development process, having security people and developers working together, and so that cross-training, that cross-information sharing. And then when we look at some of the supply chain mitigations being published right now based on these supply chain attacks, one of the key aspects is building threat intelligence into the development lifecycle. So that as you're building your product, as you're testing your product, and as you're deploying it, you're monitoring and assessing for the risk of both the components, the entities that you're working with, as well as the vulnerabilities in your product in real time, not until not waiting till the end of the development cycle. By doing that integration point, you're building that risk-based approach into the process. Then it's just about leveraging the intelligence. And I think that's into the heart of what a lot of this we say is hard. The data is sometimes is there. It's figuring out how do you leverage it, which is, again, a process and a cultural challenge, not necessarily a technology challenge. So, Darren, yeah, Kim, I mean, I'm going to dumb this down because Steve's the smart guy in the, in the podcast here. I'm going to keep it real simple. When you look at the military and how they do planning, right, there's risk in everything they do. It's why you always hear about intelligence and ops, and they both work together in a partnership. When you really hear what Steve is saying here, it's about security and DevOps working together understanding what the outcome is the user is trying to drive towards, creating a partnership in that process and in the organization, and then bringing a complete product to market. That's about doing it safely and securely. You and I know that this happens in just about every industry out there. Cyber shouldn't be any different. And what we've said, and we've said in our opening salvo, this is about a change in thinking. And it's about coming into a current world that we know is far more dynamic than the worlds have been in the past. I mean, you know, people are hacking things on a daily, hourly, up to the minute basis looking for exploits.
Okay, so Cam, let's get to some practical from the top down. Yep. Right? So if you're a CISO or a CIO or a CTO or even a CEO, I guess we don't have CEOs in public sector, um, how do I get an initiative started with Zero Trust? So what's my first step? Yeah, for me, Darren, it's um, train your technical staff, first of all, to stop speaking in geek speak. First and foremost, oh. <laughs> uh, look, I, I've been a CTO and a CIO all out of my prior lives. And where I started to understand where I was adding value is when I could break things down into very basic common English. Getting a zero trust uh, initiative moving can be challenging because we're typically used to working with some sort of outcome in mind or some sort of objective. You know, Darren, we're big on OKRs, right, in our company. With zero trust, there's not a defined objective to work towards other than creating a more highly assured environment for your users to operate in. Now, there are KPIs, there are measures you can do that tangibly show that you're becoming more secure in all of the different controls that my good friend Steve talked about that you implement. However, it's a journey. Again, we've got these five pillars emerging. We have these two cross-functional horizontal areas, and we have this completely dynamic threat environment we have to work with. So what it's about is it's about the way the NATO model works. You have to know your native language in English. And I know all the technologists that are hearing the program right now, they're gonna go, wait a minute, I gotta learn business speak? Yes, you do. Yes, you need to understand how the business leverages the technology to create some sort of outcome that's driven by what the agencies are doing or if you're actually running a for-profit business. But the key there is, is you become more valuable because you're starting to understand the interlock between the user and how they actually digest using technology. So to get back to your core question, Darren, I think it's focus on objectives that make sense and matter. Understand it's not a destination. It's truly a journey. Put in measurable KPIs by quarter to show that you're actually building a stronger environment each quarter. And remember to continue to fund it. Don't embed the cyber budget in the IT budget. It's got to be separate and distinct because what Steve's talked about that's extraordinarily powerful is risk. And every agency, every organization knows how to measure risk. So I, I love the steps. Fortify our castles. We got to have a plan, right? So and I've heard you guys mention the five pillars and the two horizontals. Where do I find that information? Is that in the NIST standard? For zero trust, or are there other resources that I can go to go learn more about the reality of this, right? Because every vendor that comes to me is going to say, oh, we, we, have, we do all zero trust, right? It's, I feel like I'm at the, the affair, right? The medieval fair, and they're selling all this stuff for my castle, right? right? How do I know what I need and what I don't need? Where do I go? So, as you mentioned, the best starting place, the NIST SP. Special Publication 800-20 provides the model on which Zero Trust is being architected. It's a good way of envisioning different moving parts. Um, it will talk about the idea of sort of policy. policy so it's at a high enough level. It's at a high yes. enough level with practical guidance that follows. Okay, great. Um, and it also lays out, as Cameron mentioned, the, uh, the five pillars around the different areas of trust then the horizontal capability. So those are good starting points. But I would say that even before you get there, Step one, and this is one of those processes that may be sort of nascent or distributed throughout an organization, but it's foundational to everything you're going to do forward, 
is you need to have a good assessment, asset inventory, what is there to be protected. It's not about the physical systems, how many laptops, how many servers. It's the data sources, the databases, business processes, transaction applications. You need to have a good assessment and inventory of what you need to protect. You cannot protect, you can't apply any of these controls we're gonna talk about if you don't know what you have and don't know what you need. So that's setting, yeah. defining the perimeter and what's inside your castle. That's right. It's not. And Darren, anyway. even the connected devices, people forget the simple things like printers and peripherals. Well, there was a retailer that forgot about that and they had a crossover in their OT and IT and someone came through their HVAC system and captured credit cards. Whoever go. would have thought that. Exactly. Um, but once you have that inventory, and again, it, I want to hit to the point, it's not about your castle. It's about understanding where your data is. It may not be in your castle. Where your applications are may not be in your castle, but they're still assets you're relying on or they're using. The other thing to keep, about, uh, keep in mind here when we talk about zero trust and about the enterprise, we have to go beyond thinking about what I own. It's equally important the things I rely upon. You're using a SaaS environment. You're using cloud infrastructure. using third-party tools and apps. They're all part of the assets you want to protect and control. And that's one of the maybe key cultural shifts here is that the old mindset was, well, I know my network, I know my databases, I know my system, I know my stuff. That's not the game anymore. I need to know my stuff and the things I rely upon from other parties. And they not, may not be owned by me. I may be so, licensing them. So that kind of fits into that secure supply chain. That's right. Yes. Right? And I know when we talk secure supply chain, everyone's suffering from supply chain right now because we can't get enough hardware. But there's software um, secure supply chain. We saw that a major hack in the, uh, with Log4j, with SolarWinds. The list goes on and on now of, hey, I'm getting this from an external vendor. So I've got to build up some trust uh, processes, I guess is the right word, right? On security They're not even, chain. yeah, I'd even offer you it's, it's supply chain or even the raw materials. I think what, what Steve is really alluding to is this burgeoning concept of uh, value chain. What is my value chain gotcha. and how do I plug into my value chain? You very astutely mentioned the shortage that the world is seeing in semiconductor today. And I think we probably are a company that has something a little bit to say about that. But when you think of raw materials, you think of the raw materials like sand and helium and other things that required necessary to manufacture the silicon and semiconductors we manufacture. So it is knowing your value chain. And Steve is absolutely correct. It's not just what's in your castle, but it's how you make money, how that money's distributed, who you pay, your providers, and it's a critical piece of it. Well, guys, this has been really informative. And hopefully we dem demystified with our castle um, a little bit of zero trust. Um, for those of you who are listening, there will be a lot more on zero trust guaranteed on the podcast. So uh, make sure you come back and listen more. Cameron, thank you for coming on the show today. And Steve, always, always great to have you on the show. Thank you, Darren. Pleasure being Thanks, Darren. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.